Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning? We're here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I bet in January of 1997 you wondered when it would be that we'd get to chapter 12. We're finally here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to speak this morning as we ease into it on the signs of spiritual immaturity. The signs of spiritual immaturity. Now we're going to have to do some review to make sure we're in the flow and getting into chapter 12. When we live attached to Christ, now what I mean by that, we're already attached to him as believers. When you get saved, you're attached. He attaches you to himself. You're a part of his body. However, to live attached to him means on our end towards him and our willingness to surrender to him, to yield to his word, to yield to his will. Now, when that happens, there is automatic growth in our life. Let me show you this. In chapter three, Paul beautifully shows us this. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter three and verse six. And all of this is just simply in review to make sure we have the proper setting in which chapters 12 through 14 are couched. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he points back to when he was the first pastor of the church there in Corinth and very faithfully planted the word of God in their hearts. He told them earlier that he, he preached the whole council. He didn't leave anything out. He preached the word faithfully to them. Well, then he points to when Apollos, the second pastor, followed him and watered what he had taught. Verse 6. I planted, he says, Apollos watered, but God was giving the growth. Now that little phrase, God was causing the growth or giving the growth, is in the imperfect sense. And that imperfect tense means that he was consistently, as these two effective pastors that were faithfully teaching the word, God working in them and through them and with the word was causing growth to take place. A man cannot cause growth. God has to do that. But then in verse seven, he changes the tenses. He moves from imperfect to the present tense. Look in verse seven. He says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. He puts it in the present tense. In other words, God is always causing growth. You attach yourself to him. You've attached yourself to the very principle of life and growth itself. And you cannot live surrendered to him and not grow. It's like, like trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant when you attach yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You find a Christian that's not growing, you'll find a Christian not attached, not living surrendered to God's word and God's will. 
That's, that's, the, that's the only problem with him is that he won't surrender. If he'll surrender, God is always causing the growth. Now there was a time in Corinth when the believers were growing. Now this can only mean that they were taking what they had heard and they were receiving it and they were obeying it. They were living up under truth attached to, by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrendered to his will, surrendered to his word. But something happened somewhere down the line. He can point back to when they were growing, but now their growth had become stunted and they attached themselves to everything but Christ. In verse 12 of chapter one, by the time that Paul wrote this, this was the situation they were in. He says, some of you are of Paul, some of you are of Cephas, some of you are of Apollos. You're attaching yourselves to men. You're not attaching yourselves to Christ. Flesh had won out and was now ruling their life. Now think of it, Corinth, one of the best taught churches in the New Testament. And by the time Paul writes this, they're now the example of nothing but pure flesh and the havoc it can reap amongst those who know truth but do not live it. Now, solid teaching, now hear me, solid teaching is not enough. Solid biblical teaching is not enough. You say, why? Because if a person is not willing to respond to what he, has, he knows and what God has revealed to him, it produces pride and arrogance in that person's life. And the enigma is that that person becomes deceived by that which he thought that he already knew. Now, a beautiful example of this is in chapter eight, if you'll turn over to chapter eight of these Corinthian believers. How they knew truth, but weren't living up under it. What you understand is not the key. It's how you live and respond to what you understand. In chapter eight, he's dealing with the problem of eating meat, sacrificed to idols. Now, I'm not gonna go back and re-preach that. But before he answers the question, he acknowledges the wealth of knowledge that the church had, not only from him, but from Apollos. And he says in verse one of chapter eight, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, there was plenty of knowledge to go around. They had an understanding. This understanding had to be in the area of grace. They knew that if they ate meat sacrificed to idols, that would in no way infringe upon their relationship with God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. In no way would that affect their eternal standing with God. They knew that. They knew that 90% of the meat sold in the marketplace was meat sacrificed to idols. They knew they didn't have to ask. They could just go in and buy it. Give me a half pound, give me two pounds, make mine well done. They didn't have any trouble eating that meat. They understood the message of grace. But that understanding had not helped them whatsoever. Because if you're not living under grace, even though you may understand it, you fail to see an extra piece of the puzzle that needs to be there. In other words, knowledge is not enough. He says in the last part of that verse, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. In other words, if you're not living surrendered to Christ, which is the message of grace, his enabling power in your life, then there's no fruit of his spirit in your life. So therefore, what you know, you'll use to break your brother rather than build your brother. Something had happened to this church. They knew, they'd been well, well taught. They could sit in a group of debate and they could win the argument every time. They had a file folder on all the things that they had studied, probably carried it around with them. They understood, but they were upside down because they weren't willing to live in obedience to what they knew. Matter of fact, fact, you can see clearly what happened to them in chapter three. If you'll turn back to chapter three, verses one through four, 
Here's the Corinthian church. Here's what's wrong with them. Knowledgeable, well taught, but babies. They would not grow up. They wouldn't come out of that nursery. In verse one of chapter three, the apostle Paul takes them back to Acts chapter 18 when he first went there. And when many were saved, remember he went and made tents with Priscilla and Aquila. Then Silas and them came over and so they started witnessing and a church was birthed there. And he points them back to that time. And he says in verse one, and I brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. That little term men of flesh is sarkinese. Sarkinese comes from the word sarkikos, which is used in three and four. But as far as I can get out of it, that word has more the idea you had the attitude of a baby. Now a baby is going to live like a baby. Babies are babies, but that's okay. When they're first born, you tolerate that because you expect that out of their life. And he's not, he's not in any way uh, indicting them in verse one. He's just simply saying, you were babies back then and you acted like babies and that's okay. There's a time to being a baby. There's a thirst to being a baby in verse two. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able yet to receive it. In other words, you couldn't chew the deeper things. And that doesn't mean he watered down what he taught. What he taught was the word of God. It's the spirit that makes it milk to one person and meat to another. It depends on where you are in your level of maturity as to how that communicates in your life. And so he's not indicting them. Babies act like babies. Babies drink milk because that's all babies can, can feed on. Then comes the indictment in the middle of verse two. He says, indeed, even now you are not yet able. There's the problem. Back then was not a problem because you were growing. You had just been birthed. But the problem is you are still in that nursery. And I want to tell you, oh, how these babies, spiritual babies, well taught, had caused such havoc in the church at Corinth. You want to see what a baby can do? You get a bunch of folks my age or more, 55 or whatever over, and you get a bunch of us together, we're gonna to have a good meal. We're gonna have some fellowship. You take one baby. You don't have to take 10, don't take two. Just take one. One that hadn't been fed in a while. One that's a little bit tired and put it right in the middle of that group. And I wanna tell you, the things you thought you were gonna do, you won't do. And the things that you thought you were gonna eat, you won't eat. And the time that you thought you were gonna have, you don't have. That little baby will control every single thing that's going on. Now you can imagine when you've got a whole church full of them, the havoc that was caused in that early church. The symptoms of babies, living like babies that won't grow up, First of all was an apathy to sin in chapter five. We see there that they, would, they were tolerating a sin that shocked the world. A man in their midst was living with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. You have incest and adultery going on at the same time and they won't even deal with it. They just apathetic to the whole thing. Well, you know, that's his life. He has to learn to figure it out himself. In chapter six, we see the vengefulness towards each other. Man, they not only offended each other, you know, babies offend one another, but not only did they offend each other and live that way, but they took each other to court when it, when it was costly. And buddy, they would sue each other to drop of a hat. They had no witness whatsoever in pagan Corinth in the courts because of the way they treated one another. In chapter six, we also see their fleshly indulgence. Immorality was all over the city. And here are these little babies that won't respond to truth, that won't attach themselves to Christ by faith. As a result of it, now they begin to be pulled into the immorality of the city. And in verse 18 of chapter six, Paul has to say, flee immorality, run from it. 
We also see in chapter seven, the confused ideas that they had of the family and marriage. Their marriages and their families were in shambles and they didn't know what to do. They were totally confused. In chapter eight through 10, which is a unit and must be looked at as a unit, we see their insensitivity to one another. People that knew beating up people that didn't know with the word of God. They used it as a club rather than something that could, the truth that could set people free. And then in chapter 11, we see all their bitter relationships, factions, divisions, all this kind of garbage surface at the taking of the Lord's Supper. They totally desecrated the Lord's Supper. Now this is the havoc that takes place when you have people that know, but people that don't respond and live what they know. It completely perverts their lifestyle, and as a result, it causes nothing but confusion and chaos. Carnal, immature, unspiritual, sick and anemic lives are the result of people that won't live attached to the Lord Jesus by faith and surrender to his will and to his word. This is the setting for chapters 12 through 14. You must understand this. You must understand this. This is a pitiful church, a pitiful excuse for anybody to call themselves Christians. That's the setting of chapter 12 through 14. Paul is dealing with a group of people who do not walk by faith, they lived in their feelings. They walked by sight. They were attached to their flesh and not to Christ. Truth was nothing but a distortion to the Christians who were incarnate. You see, you don't possess truth. Truth must possess you. And if it doesn't possess you, you don't know truth. You think you do, but you don't know what you think you know. That's what he said back in chapter eight when he was referring to this very thing. In the last two verses of chapter 11, he one more time brings them these these Christians who some were weak and sick and some were dead because of, of their behavior, God's judgment upon them. He one more time recalls them to proper respect for one another and care about one another. Verse 33, he says, so then my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The word wait is the word tarry, wait. Give respect to that other person. You see what was happening? The rich would go in, eat all the food. The poor were hungry. The, the rich were drunk and full. And he says, you wait upon each other, man. Respect one another. This is a sacred time. And it's when the body comes together in unity, not in division. And then in verse 34, he says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that he may not come together for judgment. Don't come to the Lord's Supper that way. And the remaining matters, he says, I shall arrange when I come. In other words, that wasn't all. They've been asking questions since chapter seven. He's just answering questions. He said, hey, there's some more things that you asked me, but when I come, I'll straighten those things out. Now that leads us in to chapter 12 through 14. And again, chapter 12 through 14 must be taken as a unit, just like eight through 10 must be taken as a unit. And we must understand now this fleshly-minded, upside-down, distorted church as we enter into chapter 12 through 14. And this pitiful church, Paul immediately, once again, starts pulling to the surface the signs of spiritual immaturity that exists among them. And you have to see that because so many times you jump into chapter 12, immediately you go to verse eight down, but you don't get into verse one and two. One and two sets the stage here. And he's telling them something. We need to take time and understand. First sign of spiritual immaturity that he brings up in verse one is ignorance of spiritual matters. The ignorance of spiritual matters or spiritual things. 
Now what a task Paul is having here in straightening out these upside down believers here at Corinth. It's interesting how we live in two worlds. He dealt with the physical world of chapter 11, the physical public worship. But in chapter 12 now, he's gonna enter into the spiritual dimension. We live in the physical, but we also live in the spiritual. Two worlds at the same time. And that's very confusing to some people. Now, we can ignore the physical. And somebody corrected me last week and said, hey, there's one other reason people are sick and that's because they don't eat right. You're exactly right, I should have brought that out. When you don't eat right, you're gonna suffer the consequences. That's the law of living in the physical of this world that we live in. You see, if you ignore the physical, you can ignore it all you wanna ignore it. But when we ignore it, we have to reap the consequences for having ignored it. Now, it's the same way in the spiritual world. We can ignore the spiritual world, but we have to live in the consequences of ignoring it. The Christians at Corinth were living in the consequences of ignoring their spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse one, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now that little word now that starts off the verse is the little word D-E in the Greek language, the. And it's the little word that can be translated now or it can be translated but. And I think it ought to be translated with the latter, but, because he's changing gear. He's shifting from the physical world of, into public worship. He's shifting now into the spiritual dimension here and he's, he's making a definite contrast. But, he says, concerning spiritual gifts. Now the word gifts I'll deal with in just a second because it's really not there, but the word spiritual, let's talk about that first. The word spiritual is the Greek word that comes from the word pneuma, which means spirit. Pneuma is that which refers to the characteristic faculty that God has given us to communicate with him. Man to God and God to man. It's in that spirit that the, Lord, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell giving us that access to the Father and giving us that communication with Him. Now this word stands in contrast to another word, pneuma over here, and sukikos, which is used over in chapter two in verse 14, that deals with the soulish part of man. The soul is that aspect of, of man that he really shares with the rest of this kingdom that's here on this earth, as far as animal kingdom, whatever because even animals have something like this. It's what gives you the ability to relate to the world around you, whereas in contrast, the spiritual part of man is that which gives us the ability, once saved, to relate to the world above us. The soul gives us to relate to the world around us. The spirit gives us the ability to relate to the world that is above us. Now, we must make another correction to the test. He says, now, concerning the spiritual, and then the word gifts, the word gifts is not in the literal. That is written in by a translator. The word is simply spiritual, used in the plural, and referring to the many manifold aspects of the spiritual realm. He says, but concerning spiritual matters would be a better way of translating that. Concerning spiritual things, you see. Now, gifts are a part of these things, but not just gifts. He says, now you Corinthians, you don't understand public physical worship and you don't even understand spiritual things. He's not just talking about gifts. In fact, this was the problem of the church of Corinth. What they had done, they stressed only one aspect of the life in the spirit and therefore neglected the rest of it. And that's exactly what the problem is going on in America today. People are zeroing in on one aspect of the spiritual but leaving out other aspects of the spiritual. 
The flesh always tends to exaggerate what it sees and what it experiences. It lives in the sensual. Remember this. If you're not living up under the spiritual power of God, you're living according to the flesh. And the flesh always exaggerates what it experiences and what it perceives and what it sees. I'll give you another example of that. When you isolate one area of the spiritual life, the spiritual dimension, you become unbalanced. Take the area of prayer, for instance. I know people right now, whoa, Brother Wayne, that's a sacred cow. Don't you talk about prayer like that. No, no, no. If that's the only thing you're interested in your life, you have missed the balance of the Christian life. You perhaps don't understand spiritual things. You're zeroing in on one thing of the spiritual life. What about surrender to the Word of God? What about living in the fullness of the Spirit of God? What about all the other things that go along with it? You can't just isolate one thing. You have to have an understanding of spiritual matters, of spiritual things. Now in the physical world, to give you an example, if you have someone who over-exaggerates one aspect of physical life, then what we do with those kinds of people, if it's a pattern of their lifestyle, we put them in institutions because they're imbalanced. They don't understand where that little piece fits. And so they overdo and exaggerate that one piece. It's the same way in the spiritual life. And what happens when you're living like the Corinthians, everything's distorted. And again, you will tend to exaggerate that which you see, that which you touch, and that which you feel. So experience becomes a hedge around the things that you tend to exaggerate. And Paul says, this is what your problem is. You don't understand spiritual matters, much less the gifts and the teaching on the gifts. You see, the world of the Spirit is only, only accessed by faith. It's there all the time. But the only way you access it is by faith in the Word of God and obedience to Him. And when you access it, you see, your senses and what you see, touch, and feel in any, in any way does not prove or disprove the spiritual world. It's only accommodated, it's only accessed to our willingness to attach ourselves to Christ. If I'm not willing to walk by faith, if I'm not willing to die to the ugliness of Wayne's flesh, if I'm not willing to do that, then I have not accessed, I've ignored the spiritual world. The result of that is a distorted view of spiritual things. Paul was displeased with their obvious imbalance and ignorance of spiritual things. He said, I do not want you to be unawares. Now the word unawares is the word agnoeo. We saw that over in Romans. Without understanding, without knowledge. It's transmitted knowledge. It's actually the understanding that comes with that knowledge. I don't want you to walk around, he says, as spiritual ignoramuses. There's <laughs> another way to put that. You people that are so upside down, you're ignorant of spiritual things. So why in the world do you want to talk about this or that? You don't even understand the whole picture. You won't live attached to Christ. You've attached yourself to everything but him. The word has the idea. It's a word we get the word agnostic from. An agnostic is one who has not experienced or cannot experience something. And therefore he does not know and does not believe. But he's ignorant. And he's ignorant not because it's impossible for him to know but because he refuses to realize that there are certain things that cannot be known unless there's a capacity for knowing. And still until he puts his faith into Christ, then he's not going to know beyond that point. Paul tells them that because of their fleshly living, their refusal to surrender what they know, they do not have understanding of spiritual matters. Not just the gifts, but in the spiritual realm itself. He's displeased that they don't have this. Now, you see, we must be careful to realize that the greatest and most extraordinary miracle that God has ever given to us is putting His Spirit into us and establishing communication between Himself and us. 
It's amazing to me. You find a person that doesn't live in that daily, that person's always looking for a miracle here, a miracle there, and a miracle everywhere. And completely ignores the greatest miracle, a transformed life. And God lives in him, and God lives in him to reveal himself to him. And if you'll just accommodate him by faith and attach himself to him, that is the miracle of salvation, and nothing can top it. But if you're living outside of that miracle, and you're not walking in the word of God, and you're not living surrendered to Christ, then no wonder you tend to exaggerate things in the spiritual realm. Not only did Corinth not understand physical public worship, they didn't understand and were completely distorted in the area of spiritual matters. Why? Because they would not bow. Now concerning spiritual things, brethren, I don't want you to be ignoramuses. I don't want you to remain ignorant and unaware. So first of all, he points them to the first sign of spiritual immaturity, and that is an ignorance of spiritual things. But the second thing he's going to point to is going to take me a little longer. The second thing he points to is the influence of a pagan past. Oh, you better stay with me here. If I'm not influenced by the Spirit of God, then my flesh is influencing me, and my flesh is being influenced by my pagan past. Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, and why would he point them back to that time? You were led astray to dumb idols. You mean that's the only thing that happened when they were pagans? What about talking about immorality? Why not talk about some other things, drunkenness or other things? I mean, come on, man. That's not the only thing they did. No, he picked out the main thing that he can relate, that all of them could relate to that goes back to their pagan past. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols. However, you were led. That's an interesting translation. We'll get to it in a moment. The word you know there is a word, evite, that tends to have a little difference than the word gnosko. Gnosko is you know by experience. It's transmitted knowledge. But edite is not that way. It's intuitive knowledge. You know, I've always thought that my wife had intuitive knowledge. <laughs> Dinah will say, I know this. And I'll say, how do you know? And she said, I don't know. I just know. That bugs me. And especially when 98% of the time she's right. Now, that's in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, when you're living attached to Christ and in his word, there is a knowing that God gives to you. Matter of fact, it's there whether you are or you're not. It's built in. It comes in with the package. The Holy Spirit of God gives it to you. Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. What word is used there? Intuitive knowledge. You didn't go to school to get that. Now, when you have this intuition, this spiritual intuitive knowledge, that doesn't mean that you don't need more knowledge, but there are certain basic things that Christians just simply know. It's built in, comes in with a package. The Holy Spirit brings that understanding. The first thing you intuitively know when you get saved is the difference of what is now and what is in the past. The first thing you know, you know the roots of every problem that you're facing. Now, let me throw that out to you. If you're not living surrendered to Christ and being under the influence of his Holy Spirit, you're living under the influence of your flesh, then what is that problem that comes back from your past and haunts you? Is it immorality? Is it covetousness? Is it bitterness? What is it that goes back to your past pagan life? It used to dominate you. And you know that the roots of what you're dealing with now are set back in the setting of what you were when you did not know Christ. Everybody knows that. That's intuitive. It's built in. 
I mean, come on, you don't get saved and start having this problem. You had it before you got saved. However, now you have victory over that problem. But if you're not gonna live in the victory, then you're gonna have to go back and be influenced by what happened in your pagan past. That's where the roots are. Now, what was the root of the problem the Corinthian believers were having in chapters 12 through 14? If you go through chapter 12 through 14, it's not just gifts. One of the major issues that he deals with is the tongues issue. And I know that's what everybody's been waiting to see, what Wayne's gonna say about it. I, I'm just praying that whatever I say will come forth with such love that you can receive it. And if we disagree, we'll just choose to disagree. But I'm gonna do my best to honor the text as much as I know how. But that was the major problem. Well, if that's the major problem dealt with in 12, mentioned again in 13, but also really picked up in 14, then what was the pagan influence and the root that goes back to before they got saved? Now this is significant, I think, to the text. You know that when you were pagans, now the word pagan, translated pagan, the New American Standard, is the word translated Gentiles in the King James Version. What's the difference? Well, there really isn't because the word is the word ethne. It's not the word that is used, it means pagan, that's why it's correctly translated that way. But the word comes from a word referring to ethnic groups or nations of the world. That's why it can be translated Gentiles because you're thinking of the pagan nations of the world. Now this is a very important point. The word translated pagan in its root form comes from the word ethos, which had meaning mass or host or multitude, referring to those who are bound by the same customs, by the same language, by the same rituals, whatever. You're bound by that. You say, well, Wayne, where, where's that lady from? I heard, I heard someone recently that was talking and I thought this person is speaking a foreign language. You know where they're from? They were from the southern part, like Betsy Bird, of South Carolina. Now folks, if you don't think that they don't have a certain way of speaking that only they can understand, I promise you, you can't. I have another friend that lives down in the Cajun country of New Orleans, or down, well actually down below there. You ought to hear him talk. <laughs> and them dare duck, you know. They come over one in a bunch and two by themselves. I mean, they have a way of talking that you hadn't heard before. Now that's that word. It means you have the language that binds you. You have customs that bind you. You have other things that bind you and identify you. Now I think before we go on, and I know I'm chasing a rabbit, but let me just show you the four words that are interrelated when it comes to this kind of thing. When you talk about ethnic groups, when you talk about nations, there are four words and perhaps it'd be good for us to know. Look over in Revelation 14 and verse six, all four of them are found in that verse. Interestingly, some of them are gonna appear, reappear in 12 through 14. Revelation 14 and verse six. <clears throat> he says in verse six, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. Now, so these nations live on the earth, all right? And to every nation, number one, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. Now that's four different words. And I want to show you what they are. The first one, every nation, is the word that we're looking at or, or similar word that we're looking at there in 1 Corinthians 12. The word tribe, phulia, it, it has a little bit different meaning than just a people that have a common bond. The word tribe refers to a national unity of a common descent. Very similar, but just a little tweak difference. 
The word laos, people, and the last word is used there, is a, used as a political unity with a common history and a constitution. Then the word glossa is the word used for tongue, which means a known, understandable, common language that binds these people together. So you see the four words that can be used, all of them very similar, but each one having just a little twist and a difference from the other. Now the word ethnos, pagan, nation, as we're Gentiles, is the word we're looking at, is the lesser or the weaker of all four of those words. So he's simply, he's simply pointing to the nations that are pagan of this world. He doesn't have anything political in it. He doesn't have anything of their language barrier or anything like that. He's just saying, saying back when you were a member of the pagan nations of this world. No, don't miss this, don't miss this. Listen, that word is always used, or most of the time used, to differentiate between the Jewish people and the pagan nations of the world. Almost every time you find it. Never, never, never can you put Jewish people into this word. This is a pagan word. Understand what I'm saying now. Here, it's used as, as differentiating between Christians and the pagan peoples of this world. But there's a thought in this. Why did Paul use that word? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to use that word? Oh, don't, don't lose me here now. I think that what he's saying is that most of you people in Corinth do not have a Jewish background. Now, some of them did, but most of them did not. They had a pagan background. Now, there was something about their pagan background that had everything to do with the problems they were facing. He was saying to them, listen, if you came from Judaism, which is a monotheistic, God-ordained nation, if you would have come from Judaism, you would not have any of the problems you have in 12 through 14. But because you come out of the pagan nations of this world, the idolatrous nations of this world, this is having something to do with the problem I'm now having to address to you in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Something about your pagan past directly relating to these tongues and these, these, these unknown tongues and all that has something to do with the fact that you came out of a pagan background, not out of a Jewish background. Because there's something in your pagan background that lured you and influence then and influences now your life. Now, what is he talking about? Go back. You know that when you were pagans, you were in the lost, idolatrous, pagan nations of this world. You were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Now, that you were led astray there is in the present passive voice. I agree. Present passive voice. Present tense means you were constantly being led. Passive voice means you didn't have anything to say about it. <laughs> it's just like, I don't have anything right now to say about it. You had nothing to say about it. You were captivated. You were being led. Something lured you. Something that was in control of you. Something got your attention. Something swept you away toward these pagan idols. The word, little word, two. Dumb idols, as it's there. The word to is pros, motion toward something. And what I see here is that Paul's referring to something about their pagan past that had to do with the idolatry of the, that pagan past and it had to do with a lifestyle that consistently was pulling and luring them toward these idols during their pagan years. They could relate back to it. It influenced them then and evidently 
because their living lives after the flesh had come back to influence them now. Now what in the world is that? You remember back when we started the book of 1 Corinthians, I gave you a, a little bit of history having been in Corinth June a year ago. Something that I did not know until then. And I found out that in every pagan temple in Greece, but not only, I mean in Corinth, not in Greece, but in Corinth, but particularly the temple of Apollos, which is the main temple downtown Corinth, they had what they had called these pagan temples, and they had these people, I would call them gurus, that's not what they were called. I'll tell you where they get their, their influence from. But they would go into what they call the state of ecstasy. Out of, me means to stand outside of something. People that would sit cross-legged on a tripod in, a, in what they call the Holy of Holies of their temple. Of course, that was the pagan gods I'm talking about here. But I'm using that to give you a little bit of an idea of how they copied what God's people used. And they would be in the innermost sanctum, sitting up on this tripod, and they would go into a trance. Now, they could have no intelligent thought in their mind whatsoever. I said in the first service, I'll do it again. Just like Haywood sitting right there looking at me right now. Not an intelligent thought in his brain. <laughs> you couldn't have an intelligent thought in your mind at all. <laughs> and when they would get into this trance, they were intoxicated by certain things they would eat and certain things they would drink, and they were intoxicated, and suddenly they began to speak in an unknown tongue. It was an ecstatic tongue. It was nothing more than pure gibberish. Nobody ever understood it. But let me tell you where this came from. All of this was influenced by the oracles of Delphi. Delphi was a place not far from Corinth. And it, continued, it was built around the temple to Apollos. Now we must understand something here. This temple of Apollos had affected the temple of Aphrodite, had affected the temple of Poseidon, and people began to line up under these people who had reached a state of ecstasy. And I'm of him, and I'm of him, and I'm of him. And Paul says, hey, you Christians are acting just like the unchristians. You're of Paul, you're of Cephas. They're doing the same thing. They've got their gurus. They've got their, their people who speak in this ecstatic language, and they think somehow they've been given something by the divine itself. Now that was a lure, idolatrous lure, that had captivated these people in their pagan past and now had cropped up again in their Christianity. You see in Delphi, where all this got started, or really not all, maybe didn't get started there, but it was really promoted there. A few miles from Corinth in Greece, they had these oracles. Now what was an oracle? Oracle was a priestess woman through whom a deity was believed to speak. The deity had to pick a person because the stone idols were dumb. Remember, that's the word he chooses to use himself. They couldn't speak. Now, it was either that or a shrine to which a deity revealed hidden, hidden knowledge or the divine purpose. Now, what really took place at Delphi? Those who wanted to consult the oracle, they wanted this divine knowledge. They would go to this temple of Apollos. They would sacrifice a sheep, a goat, a boar, or some other animal, and had to pay for it, by the way. After which, if the omens were favorable, they entered the room adjoining the inner shrine, the inner sanctum of the temple of Apollo. Now remember that the temple of Apollo was in, also in downtown Corinth. I want you to keep remembering that. There they awaited their turn, and they basically drew straws, but unless one of the priestesses had given you special favor and you could go, go in ahead of the rest of them, no women were allowed in this, not at all. They handed in questions written on leaden tablets, many of which have now been discovered. 
The priestess was called a Pythia. The Pythia or priestess who delivered the oracle usually was somebody, a pleasant woman, over 50 years of age. That was the key one at Delphi. She would purify herself in a, with a spring there in that mountain that, that they thought was sacred, called a Castilian fountain. And then she drank out of, a, out of another cup that's it supposed to be holy drink or water. And then she would eat of a laurel leaf. And then she would get up on this tripod. Have you ever been deer hunting? You've seen a tripod stand? <laughs> She'd get up on this tripod. This just helps some of you that are kind of, <laughs> kind of like me. She'd get up on this tripod. She, was, she appeared to be intoxicated by the breathing in of all the fumes of the drink and stuff that she'd had. And she kept inhaling and inhaling and inhaling. And suddenly she would break out into this gibberish that nobody ever understood. Interestingly, she had people sitting around her that would put it into some kind of poetry. <laughs> and the people who went to get the knowledge left saying, do what? They were more mystified when they left than they were when they went. But you know what they did? They said, wow, I don't know what we heard. Whoa, it was good though. The divine spoke to me. Even though they had no idea of what had been said. Well, this was the form of religion that was prevalent in their pagan past. Wrapped around idolatry. It brought great riches to Delphi and to the surrounding area, especially Corinth. It began to be famous in the seventh century BC, started around the Hellenistic period, which was the Greek influence. It continued during Paul's ministry in Greece, both in Athens and Corinth, particularly those two places. It was not until the reign of Emperor Theodosius in AD 394 that the Delphic oracles were ordered to close and the entire area was destroyed. But the peak of their existence was right in the midst of the writing of the letter of 1 Corinthians. And that's what we've got to say. If you ignore this one piece you're already sidetracking the direction Paul's taking, chapters 12 through 14. You cannot ignore this verse. He said there was something in your past tied directly to idolatrous practices that lured you and captivated you and drew you into it. And what he's saying to these fleshly-minded Christians, remember your past heathenism. Remember your past that, was, that hailed from the Delphic worship. That's verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You must see this. The influence of pagan practices in the past. And it's indeed worthy to note that such a situation as Paul had to address only, only, only occurred in Corinth. No other epistle addresses it. Only Corinth, which had the close proximity to the oracles of Delphi. Listen to his words introducing this. He says, you know, verse 2, that when you were pagans, when you were pagans, you were passive voice present tense being led astray. And that being led astray has the idea of helplessly to dumb idols. The word dumb there means it had no voice, it could not speak. And then he says, however, if you, you were led, that, that really is not however you were led. Well, it could be. It means the manner in which you were led, helplessly. He says, now I've got something to say to you Corinthians that are upside down, that have a lot of knowledge but won't surrender to it. You've distorted the whole truth of spiritual things. You don't even understand. You're ignorant of spiritual matters. And before we can ever approach the gifts over here that you want to talk about, let me first of all show you why you're ignorant. You, your flesh is so dominating you that your past pagan life has begun to influence you again. And you have allowed it to creep right into your thinking towards spiritual matters. 
when you have distorted what the truth of those things really are. Being pagan, it was natural for them to be led that way. But being Christian, it's unnatural. But how many Christians do you know that live in the unnatural instead of living in the natural? Because they won't surrender. They'll let their flesh rule. And this is what happens when flesh rules. It exaggerates the sensual. It focuses on it, isolates it, exaggerates it. But not only that, it it's like, lets its pagan past continue to be an influence in its life. Well, 27, 26, 25, 24. <laughs> We're coming down to zero, 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 which means, again, in the Greek, shut up. Ignorant of spiritual things influenced by pagan past. Let me show you an illustration of this, how a Christian can be influenced by pagan past. Years ago, I did the book of Hebrews. Now, that's been a long time. I preached 155 messages in Hebrews and probably should go back and preach on the things I missed when I preached on Hebrews. <laughs> I mean, what a book. One day, we were addressing that little phrase that said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, which, I, by the way, was brought up to me last week when I said, you don't have to be back at night here tonight. Just do whatever God wants you to do. Somebody said, well, what about the verses? Now, wait a minute. Forsake is the key there. If you're doing what God wants you to do, chances are you're going to be here because he loves his body to be together. But anyway, I said, sometimes God doesn't want you in church. And I said, from the looks of some of you, I don't want you here either. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I've usually got my foot in my mouth, and I didn't mean anything by it. But there's always sometimes people that mean something by it, you know. After the service was over, a little lady sitting up under the balcony, she was crying. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what have I done? And I walked over kind of tenderly. Everybody had left, and I walked over. I said, are you okay? I'm real good in these kind of situations. Y'all have noticed that. <laughs> Are you all right? Kind of afraid they're going to, rah, no. And she said, oh, I'm so happy. I'm so full of joy. And I'm thinking, whew, man, could have fooled me. What's she so happy about? I was glad now to approach her. And she said, back when I was growing up, I was not a Christian, but I was in one of these churches that put laws on you all the time. And they told me that if I ever missed church, that was going to count off when I stood at the beam of seat of Christ one day. And she said, I have grown up thinking that if I have to miss church, it's going to cost me my rewards in heaven one day. And she said, I work in the afternoon. My husband left me, and I have to work two jobs, and I don't want to be a waitress, but that's what I do in the afternoon. She said, I go home from church on Sunday morning. I barely have time to get my clothes changed, take my children to somebody who will keep them, and I go to work, and I don't get off in time to get here on time. And said, boy, she just began to weep. And she said, all these Sundays I've been thinking that's counting against me and my rewards one day. I tell you what. In all Christian love, I'd like to get a hold of whoever told her that and take him out behind a building for about 10 minutes. That kind of garbage that came out of a pagan past had continued to influence her life even till the day the truth finally set her free. You think you cannot be influenced by a pagan past? You think the Christians, the Christians at Corinth weren't being influenced by a pagan past? Don't touch chapter 12 until that is nailed down solid in your mind. It's a pitiful, fleshly, carnal, upside-down church that had knowledge, but their truth was distorted because they wouldn't live. And they exaggerated anything that was sensual, showing that they had no capacity to understand the balance of spiritual matters. Look out. The flesh will deceive you. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.